You can go ahead and uh, turn in the scriptures to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. We'll begin there. We're going to take a little bit of a survey this morning, uh, beginning with that passage. But, but prior, to, um, prior to us reading that and getting into that, I've got a few things to say. But before I say anything, I'd like for us to pray again. I know we've just prayed, but we need the Lord's help. And I want to pray specifically for the Lord's help as we come to His Word, that we would understand what it is He would say to us specifically this morning. So pray with me. Father, we come asking for the help, the guidance, the uh, illumination of your spirit that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would know we have heard the very voice of God. Yes, in the preaching of the word, not through my voice and not through me, but Lord, you use the preaching of the word to speak to us. And we would pray you do that this morning, that you would powerfully speak to us individually, Lord, we are here from all kinds of activity this past week, all kinds of circumstances. There are many things we are struggling with. There are many things that we are rejoicing in. There, there's a lot going on in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we come asking that you would speak specifically from your word this morning to our specific needs, whatever they may be. May it be as we walk away from here this morning. That we could not say, we did not hear from the Lord this morning. So we pray, Father, speak through your word, convict us, encourage us, strengthen us, do your will by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we have been talking about Jesus as the Son of God. And I've made the point that he's always been the Son of God. Of course, he is the eternal Son of God. Eternally, he has always coexisted with the Father as the Son and the Father as the Father. They have always been. He's always been that second person of the Trinity, uh, coexisting as the Son to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. But the Son of God in Scripture is often used as a title not just as a statement of the deity of Christ. It's used as a title for particular people, for particular men in the Scriptures. Son of God is actually a title given to certain human beings. And so the last couple of Sundays, we have looked at Adam, who in Luke chapter 3 is declared to be the Son of God. And then we also looked in Exodus chapter 4, where we saw that Israel, is identified to Pharaoh. Moses says, go to Pharaoh and tell him, Israel is my firstborn son, right? So Israel's the son of God. We talked about how that idea of the son of God, a title, it always includes two notions. Whenever a man is called the son of God, there's two notions to that. He's a priest and he's a king. And so we saw that in Adam because Adam represents the creation, all the creation, all the creatures, he represents that to God. That's the priestly role. But he also represents God's kingly role to the creation. So all his children that he will have, so all the human beings that will come, he serves in this role as king. And of course, he failed at that calling as the Son of God. And so we saw where God takes Israel... And Israel is now the what we call the corporate Adam. 
And we see this office or this vocation of priest and king being divided at this point. So this is after the fall. These vocations are divided between Aaron and his sons, who would be the priest, and then David and his sons, who would be the king. But we saw that Israel is called the son of God. Aaron, in some sense, was his son. And so last week we looked at his priestly role, that is the son of God being Jesus, uh, the priestly role of Christ. Today we're going to close this little mini-series with seeing Jesus as the Son of God, serving as the King. As the King. So, Scripture teaches us God the Son became a man in order to take on Himself the title Son of God. I know it sounds funny, sounds kind of weird, but He becomes a man because only a man can bear the title of Son of God, meaning the priest and the king who God has appointed to those roles. And so this indicates that he was the better Adam and he was the true Israel. True Israel. So as these offices were divided in Israel, we see them being reunited as they were always intended to be with Adam. They were, they were united. They are reunited in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the true priest and the true king. Yes, he's a prophet as well. The emphasis here is upon these two offices of priest and king. So God the Son became a man so that he would become the Son of God in order to be God's eternal king. That's our emphasis this morning. So Jesus had to be born a man. Right? He had to be born a son of David, thus, Mary, the tribe of David. So, biologically, he is connected to the tribe of David, connected to King David himself. And legally, he is connected to David and the tribe of Judah through Joseph. Because it's David's son who would hold the title Son of God. It is David's son holding the title Son of God who would be the everlasting king. And so that's what we're going to trace through Scripture in a couple of passages here, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So now, if you would, turn your attention there. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're looking at verses 12 through 14. So God comes to David. David wants to build him a temple, right? But God says, no, you will not build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. That is, I'm going to build you a house, an offspring, a name for yourself. Beginning in verse 12, he's establishing a covenant with David. And in verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled. So David, when you die, when you lie down with your father, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, he's talking immediately about Solomon. But there's going to be conditions to this covenant that Solomon will not meet. But look at verse 13. He will build a house for my name. Yes, Solomon built the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We see that this individual is the son of God. 
declaratively so. He will be to me a son. So I want you to look at Psalm 2, Psalm chapter 2. Again, a psalm of David here, and David is likely thinking of the covenant that God has made with him, the realities of what God will do because of the covenant that he made with them through his offspring, his the kings, the king or kings that will reign in his place on his throne. I want you to look at verse 7. So Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now a warning to the kings and the nations of the world. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, right? The Son of God. Kiss Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now tracing this theme through Scripture, there's other places to trace it, but I want you to look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Look at the first four verses with this idea, notion in mind. See what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son. But look how he uses this idea and notion of son concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power when? When is He declared to be the Son of God? You see, this is important. You understand, this is a title. It is not saying anything about the deity of Christ. Christ has always been. He's always been the Son of God. But when He comes in the flesh, and when He was raised in power, in His resurrection, He is then declared to be Son of God. You see that according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. We see here that it is Christ who becomes the Son of God. Yes, He is the Son of God, but you see what I'm saying. He assumes the title. And this title ties Him to David and the covenant to David so that Jesus is the King. The one that was promised. The one that the promises were given to. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want you to look in Hebrews chapter 1, last passage. I'll mention other passages, but this is the last one I want you to see. With your own eyes. Hebrews chapter 1. 
Beginning in verse 3, halfway down the verse there. After making purification for sins, how did He do that? He died on the cross. After He died on the cross, He was risen from the dead, ascends into heaven. Where is He? He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs, because to which angels did God ever say this? You are My Son, today I have begotten you. Do you see what He's saying here? Is that this title is bestowed upon Jesus. Not because He's God the Son, but because He's the Son of God. He's a man who is given the title Son of God. And then also, I will be to Him a Father and He shall be to me a Son. That's right out of 2 Samuel 7. Uh, you, to, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. It's right out of Psalm 2. There is no doubt in our minds then that these promises that we see to David, that he will have a son who will be the Son of God, there's no doubt in our mind who that means. In the covenant with David, God promises him that he will have a son who will be my son, the Son of God, and will sit on the throne forever. So God the Son became a man in order to become the Son of God so that He could be David's greater Son. Now, you know that title. Listen to that. David's greater Son. It doesn't mean the greatest Son that David had. <laughs> it's the Son who's greater than David. Right? Became a man to become the Son of God so that He could be David's greater Son to rule and to reign as God's eternal, everlasting King. Now, why should this matter to you? Why should this matter to you? What difference should it make in your life right now today that Jesus Christ is the King ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father? Here's some facts about you. And some of you will admit to this and some of you may not. These are biblical facts about you. The fact is, you and I need a strong king. First reason is because we can't even control our own hearts. We don't rule our own hearts. We are ruled by fear. We are ruled by anxiety. We are ruled by despair and depression. We are ruled by anger. We are ruled by and prone to rebellion. This idea of self-rule or autonomy. I can do it myself. 
I will do it myself. I do not want anyone telling me how to live. We're prone to that. Funny thing is, we think we are autonomous, but the second reason we need a strong king is because we have powerful enemies that we cannot overcome on our own. Not only can we not rule our own hearts, we have powerful enemies who are out to destroy us. In fact, we're enslaved to those enemies even though we think we rule ourselves. That very notion that we rule ourselves is actually a sign that we are enslaved. We are in bondage to enemies. There are those who would destroy us, and they destroy us by enslaving us, leading us to destruction. The Bible calls these enemies the world, right? It's this whole world system that is opposed to God's rule and reign. It's our culture. It's the dominant culture. Not because the United States has gotten bad recently, but it's always been bad. It's always been dominated by anti-God mentality. Varying degrees, yes, I'll give you that. And that's all I'll give you. We're not and have not been God's chosen people. God's chosen people didn't act the way they ought to have acted. All right? And He was their king. There are enemies, and so it's this world. Uh, our own sinful nature, which we've already touched upon, it's ungovernable, rebellious. You can't even control yourself. You can't keep yourself from being fearful and anxious. Don't you love it when people tell you not to be? Don't be anxious. Don't you love it when they tell you you don't need to be depressed? Don't you love it when your wife comes to you, to you and says, Husband, you don't need to be so angry at your children. Or don't you wives love it when your husband comes to you and says, well, this is how you should feel. Right? We can't, we can't turn it on and off. We can't control ourselves. That's the sinful nature, our flesh. It's ungovernable, rebellious. It doesn't respond to our commands. And then, of course, there's the devil. So we cannot, no human being can ever overcome the power of these enemies. And my primary evidence that this is true is that every single human being dies. Every single human being will die. Unless Jesus comes again, and we happen to be there at the end, that every human being dies. That's my evidence that there are enemies that are too powerful for us. Death bears witness to the power of these enemies. We need a king who is stronger than these enemies. Because Jesus Christ, in His resurrection, conquered these enemies. We need that king. A third reason that we need a strong king is to restore us to the true human purpose, to our true purpose. Why we exist to restore us to fellowship. 
fellowship with and worship and service of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because we were made to live in the presence of God Almighty, honoring and exalting Him and walking in fellowship with Him. And in order for this to happen, we need a strong King who can restore us to this noble position. And you realize what He's restoring us to, what position He's putting us in, it's the position of being sons of God. Priest. And kings. I told you last week, women. There's no queens. There's no non-priest. You, women, will be priests and kings. It's important to maintain those titles. I'm a firstborn son, but a lot of you aren't. We'll all be firstborn sons. Right? I mean, it is the exalted position. No doubt. But we'll all be in that position. That's my point. All of us will be firstborn sons. All of us will be kings. All of us will be priests. Because we will all be sons of God. That's what we're made for. That's what this strong king restores us to. This royal, kingly priesthood and service to and in honor of God's Son and God's King. So you and I need a strong king. We need a powerful ruler. Trials, temptations, cross-purposes as to why we exist, all of these things threaten to undo us. To drag us down into an abyss, into a pit of sin, destruction, death. And only a powerful king can rescue us. Only a powerful king can come down there in the mire and the muck and pull us out. <laughs> Do not imagine that you can govern yourself out of that mess. You can't. You need a strong, powerful king. And that powerful King is Jesus Christ. He is God the Son. God the Son became a man in order to be appointed the Son of God, the better Adam, the true Israel, the great high priest, the powerful and eternal King. Why did Jesus come? <laughs> right there. Right there. That's why Jesus came. That's why this... This baby was born to this Jewish mother some 2,000 years ago in the meager circumstances that they, they found themselves in to be this. So how do you connect to this king? How do you avail yourself of his powerful work on your behalf? How do you grow in your reliance upon his lordship in your life? Give you three ways this morning, three things I'm going to call you to in order to connect to this king. To connect to this king, you must submit yourself to his lordship. Submit yourself to his lordship. I remind you of what it said in Psalm 2, verse 12 Kiss the Son. The word kiss the Son means to show him 
to submit to Him, to show Him uh, your obedience, to serve Him in verse 11 with fear and trembling joy. The fear there is the reverential trust. It's the, it's the, it's the notion, yeah, I mean, He is mighty. But He's my King. And He's my Lord. And He is for me. In fact, I would fear not being under Him. Yes, His wrath. But there's no other life apart from Him. Kiss the Son. Serve Him with fear and trembling joy. Serving this King. Doing His bidding. In second, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. to God's given Him a name, right? A name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a call here to bow yourself to His majesty and confess that He is Lord. This notion of confessing includes the idea of believing in Him, trusting in Him, acknowledging who He is. In Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, God identified Jesus as His beloved Son, the one with whom He was well pleased. But He repeats this phrase. Do you remember when? He repeats this phrase on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17. But He adds a phrase. He says, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Right? Listen to Him. So we submit to Jesus by hearing what He teaches and conforming ourselves to it. So serving Him, confessing Him, hearing and doing what He teaches and commands. These are ways that we submit to His Lordship. When we submit to Him, that connects us to Him in His powerful works on our behalf. Submit yourself to His Lordship. A second way that we connect to His kingly role in our life is to trust His rule and reign. Trust His governance. The world seems chaotic. It seems out of control. We often fail to acknowledge or even realize that King Jesus is Lord of all. That He is on the throne right now. That He is ruling all things according to His purpose and His plans right now. Do you know what that means? That means that when you walk out of here after this message today, you might be agreeing with me and thinking that this is true because Scripture says it's true, but it means it's true when you walk out of here. So that everything that is causing you to be anxious and everything that is bringing you depression and everything that is causing you to be angry and frustrate it, is all under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, and when you walk out of here, tomorrow, and every moment of your life, brother and sister in Christ, that ought to change the way you view your life. It's true, and you don't believe it. I don't believe it. What if we believed it? Now that doesn't mean that all the pain and all the lament and all the things that cause us anxiety and 
cause us depression and make us angry are going to disappear. doesn't mean I'll be healed and I'll be whole. But it means we would understand that whatever it is that's pressing against us is not everything that there is. That God has that in His hand and He is using that in my life for my good somehow, some way. And for His glory. This is what our good, strong King does. We change our lives if we believe this truth. He rules all things according to His purposes and His plans. Just listen. I, and this isn't... These, these prophecies are not about someday, one day, way out there in the future, maybe Jesus will be King and maybe, maybe he'll, he'll have charge over this crazy world and over my really crazy life. No. These promises are when He becomes a man. Listen to Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Oh yeah, I've seen that. I believe that. The government shall be upon His shoulders. He will rule and reign of the increase of His government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and on over His kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. When? When the Son is born. But maybe through His life, there is no doubt that it is in His resurrection because God appoints Him as the Son of God and the King, and we know that He is sitting at the right hand of power right now. He is king right now. This kind of king. The king who has all the government upon his shoulders. Who is increasing his government and peace as we speak. This is who he is. He ascended after his resurrection. Assumed sovereign control of the universe. Where do I get that? It's in the Colossians chapter 1. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is head of the body. Yes, the church for now. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, here and now, He might be preeminent. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Not someday, not when He comes back, now He upholds the universe in His power. That means your puny little life and all the big things that master you, He holds them in His hand, in His power. Right now, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, while not everything is yet in subjection to Him, what's He speaking of there? There are rebels opposed to Him. <laughs> Your heart rebels against Him. That's why we confess our sins every week. You ought to confess your sins every day. There are enemies that are not yet vanquished. They're conquered. They're not vanquished. 
So not everything is yet in subjection to Him, but God has left nothing out of His control. He is currently in the process of bringing everything, everything under the footstool of King Jesus. Under His feet. Under His control. His complete control. And finally, Matthew 28, 18. All authority, right? This is when, after His resurrection, this is when He's speaking to His apostles. This is before He ascends into heaven. He says to them, all authority in heaven, on earth, has been given to Me. Said this after He had been appointed the Son of God in power at His resurrection. He is Lord of all. He is exercising sovereign authority over everything. You must understand that includes your life. He rules your life. So whatever you are dealing with, whatever trials, whatever afflictions, whatever shattered dreams, whatever hardships, whatever you have lost, whatever you have gained, He is in control of. And He is using these things to accomplish His purposes of subduing you to Himself. All your temptations, even, are used by Him to bring you to Himself. Trials and temptations are brilliantly orchestrated by Him to expose in you how much you need Him and how much He helps you. So trust His government of you. Trust Him to rule over your circumstances. To rule over your trials and your temptations. Trust His sovereign control to do you good even when it's painful. He is doing you good. He's working out all things in your life to subdue you to Himself. And at the same time, He is restraining your powerful enemies and He is protecting you from them. So trust His wise and compassionate rule and reign over your life and over the whole world. He has conquered. He is powerful. And nothing will stop Him from establishing and advancing His kingdom, His rule, and His reign. Trust His government. His government. The third thing that you must do to connect to and grow in your dependence upon this King is to honor and exalt Him like His Father does. Like His Father does. I want you to listen to the way in which the Father exalts His Son Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus was pressed by the high priest at His trial uh, in front of the council just before He was crucified. In Matthew 26 and 63, he said, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. All right? The Davidic title. Is this, is this who you say you are? Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, different name, but it ties back to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus here using that language from Daniel 7. 
so that there would be no misunderstanding among the Pharisees and the people that he was standing before. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The right hand of power. The right hand of majesty on high. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. It's the right hand of God. It is the seat of the highest honor in the universe. It is the seat of God's favor. The one seated there is the one who is most favored by God. The one seated there is the one who is served and praised and exalted by angels and by all people. Even enemies will bow and acknowledge and worship the one seated at that place. And so by placing Him in that seat and putting all things in subjection under Him, God the Father is declaring Jesus Christ to be preeminent over all the universe He has created. So we read in Revelation 5, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Because God honors and exalts His Son, Jesus Christ. God favors and blesses His Son, Jesus Christ. If you want to connect to this King and you want to grow in your dependence upon Him, you must value Him the way God the Father values Him. The way in which one so highly exalted in God's estimation must be highly exalted in your estimation. Now, if you don't acknowledge Jesus in these ways, I call you today to submit to His Lordship, trust His government of you and of the world, and honor and exalt Him the way God does. And you do this by acknowledging your need for Him, that your heart and your nature is rebellious, that you have powerful enemies, and that you are at cross-purposes with God's design for you. And, this, and all of these things will destroy you. And it is only this strong and powerful King who can save you by subduing you to Himself and protecting you from and restraining your enemies. He alone, in His death and in His resurrection, has conquered sin and death. He alone has overcome these things for you. He alone can save and deliver you and restore you to that fellowship and that usefulness that you were designed for with the living God. If you're a believer, and perhaps your trust in His government of you has been shaken by your circumstances or by your trials, your temptations, you can't imagine that He can be sovereign over how painful and out of control things seem to be in your life. But I call you now to trust His rule and reign of you. There's not a single molecule. There's not a single event. There's not a single action that He does not control and does not use to His purposes and His plans for His glory and for your good. And you must acknowledge this. You must trust Him and submit to His work in your life, relying on His steadfast love and faithfulness to do you good and to use what is not good 
for your good. So submit to His Lordship, trust Him in His rule and reign over you, and continue to exalt and honor Him the way that your Father in heaven does. And you'll find yourself increasingly connected to the most favorite, the most powerful person who has ever existed. And you will increasingly recognize Him working in and on your behalf because you'll move from what is now blindness to sight. You will begin to see, be better able to see with better and fuller sight of who Jesus is not only for you, not only to you, but also for you. May the Lord give you and I such sight that we see in the, <laughs> the Son of God who is our high exalted King. And may that make all the difference in our lives. Pray with me. Father, we come thanking You and praising You for the Lord Jesus. We cannot imagine we cannot imagine life without Him. We cannot imagine what this world would be without Christ. Not only what He has done and what He has accomplished, but what yet will be done and yet will be accomplished. Lord, we thank You and praise You for the hope that we have because of who Jesus is and what He has done and what He promises yet to do. May we exalt Jesus. Help us to do so by seeing Him in all His glory, in all His doing. We need Your help to see this. We forget it. We are blind to it every day. Help us, Father, see it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.